since. Um, so, was it four weeks ago or something? Uh, I announced that uh, I was going to be asking the church for twelve thousand and five hundred dollars to cover the cost of the Go Center, um, and. A couple of weeks ago, people started giving uh, to that cause. There are in your bulletins these pledge cards, and they started to come in. Uh, as of this past week, 20 of our families have stepped up, and we've covered the whole cost. It's very encouraging. It's very encouraging because it's a sign of the commitment of the people in this congregation to the future of this congregation, to a brighter future uh, in this congregation. So thanks be to God uh, for the responsiveness and for the provision and for the faithfulness of his people. Our second reading, uh, oh, the other thing I wanted to announce is is that um, Rich Good, who is the chairman of the administration commission, which is responsible for the physical plant, for the finances, for the investments of this church is retiring from this job and uh, at the end of this year. And he warned me about this a number of months ago, and we've been quietly making inquiries uh, among the congregation. And I just wanted to uh, make this more broadly known. Uh, Rich has uh, provided... Uh, steady, almost daily work on behalf of the church. I mean, he's in the church office for many hours uh, every week handling uh, checks and and, and uh, vendors that we have to deal with and arranging for things to happen. We're looking for someone to step up into that role. Um, and someone from the congregation will be perfectly suited for that role. It was Dick Kaufman who... Uh, First went to Rich Good uh, quite a number of years ago, I guess 15 years ago or 16 years ago, and Rich had just uh, retired at, at that point and uh, suggested that, you know, maybe this is something that he wanted to do or that he was called to do, and it was the last thing in the world that Rich was thinking about. Um, but he did respond uh, to that call and, and has served this church uh, very ably uh, for, uh, you know, more than a decade and a half. And uh, so we're looking for the next person. Uh, who will step into that role, and maybe that maybe that's you. All right. Our second reading this morning uh, is uh, a traditional Advent reading. It is uh, John chapter 3, verses 1 through, looks like verse 12. Hear the word of God. In those days, John the baptizer came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. 
And do not presume to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father God, uh, we've gathered here uh, this morning in expectation uh, that we would hear from you. And Lord, we know that um, your word never goes out and returns without fruit. That your word always produces what it is that uh, you intend to happen amongst your people. And so we pray this morning that you would prepare our heart to hear from you, that you would prepare our heart to receive your word and your good news. And Lord, I pray as well that you would prepare us uh, to meet Christ, who will soon be returning. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So for hundreds of years, the prophets of Israel looked forward to something called the day of the Lord, or the last day, or the latter days. It was... The day when the Messiah would show up and establish the kingdom of heaven and begin to execute perfect justice on behalf of God's people. The wicked would be punished, the righteous would be rewarded, and the people of God would finally be able to live in peace and in safety. Now, let's face facts. That's not the world that we're living in right now. We live in a world where all kinds of things that shouldn't happen do happen. And all kinds of things that should happen don't happen. The world isn't fair. The world isn't just. Many times the wicked prosper. Many times the innocent are crushed. And our innate sense of justice bristles when we see this around us. According to a... December 2nd article in the Philadelphia Inquirer, once every 3.7 days, a child is shot in Philadelphia. A child. Not a drug dealer, not an adult out looking for trouble, but a child whose only crime is having been born in a dangerous neighborhood. A child is shot. And that's not right. And I guess every... Time that happens every 3.7 days when a child is shot in Philadelphia. I guess that Satan does a little happy dance. Because Satan loves it when God's creation is spoiled. We live in a fallen world, in a broken world, and we cry out to God, How long, O Lord, must we wait? When will you come and set things to right? During the exile And the oppression by invading empires, the children of Israel cried out to God for relief and their prophets foretold the coming of a Messiah who would secure the land and would establish justice, protecting the innocent and the weak. 
John the baptizer was the last of the Jewish prophets before Jesus. And he began his preaching by saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This promised kingdom in which God is going to reign is just around the corner. It's coming really soon. That's what John the baptizer says. And a lot of people flocked out to see him out there in the desert to hear John proclaiming this good news because that message was good news. Now what if I were to tell you that the day is soon to arrive when no child will go to bed hungry? When no woman will live in fear of violence? When no man will waste his life in a meaningless job? What if I were to tell you that? Well, then let me tell you that. The day is soon to arrive when no child will go to bed hungry. And when no woman will live in fear of violence. And when no man will waste his life in a meaningless job. How do I know this? Because this is what scripture teaches. One day Jesus will return and he will establish his reign. The kingdom of heaven is the place where God's rule is total. There will be no hunger or violence or meaningless drudgery. In the kingdom of heaven, a kingdom perfectly ordered by God's word, the curse of sin is banished and humans flourish in a way that God intended. Now, I'm not saying that the purpose of the kingdom of God is to promote human flourishing. It's not. The purpose of the kingdom of God is to bring glory to God. But believe this. Wherever God is glorified, humans made in the image of God will flourish. If you ever see people who are abused or ground down or hopeless, you can be sure that God is not being glorified. Human suffering is the result of human sin, and when sin vanishes, as it will in the kingdom of God, the suffering vanishes too. Saying that the kingdom of God is at hand is kind of like saying that Christmas is just around the corner, which every child is happy to hear. And we should look forward to that day with the same relentless impatience as young children who ask day after day, how many more days until Christmas? John the baptizer. The final prophet before the arrival of the Messiah says that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, which is the most amazing, exciting, encouraging news we could possibly hear. We've been waiting for so long. But I skipped over one word in John's sermon. The first word of his sermon. That one word is a verb... For you grammarians, it is a second person plural present imperative verb. It's the kind of verb that means you all do this and do it now. Do what now? Repent. Repent is the first word of John's sermon. Repent because the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent because... God's reign is just around the corner. And to correctly translate the full grammatical impact of the original Greek, we have to say it the way they might say it down south. Repent all y'all and do it now. That's what John said. Does that sound like a downer to you? 
I mean, just a minute ago, I was having a Christmas Eve moment with the promise of the coming kingdom of God, with everything going to be the way that it should be. No hungry children, no frightened women, no hopeless men. But then with this one word, repent, John goes all negative on us. I can just hear John's audience grumbling. Gee, John, you know, we came all the way out here into the wilderness to hear you preach. We heard that you were drawing big crowds. You're saying that the Messiah is almost here, that the golden age is about to dawn. We're expecting some kind of inspirational sermon, some kind of, I don't know, pre-victory pep rally. And now you're telling us we need to repent? I don't know, man. I think that's not a very encouraging message. You know, you can attract more flies with honey than with vinegar. Repent? That doesn't sound like a TED Talk to me. Now, maybe you're thinking, you know, John, he's an odd duck. I mean, after all, he's living out there in the desert all by himself. He eats locusts. He's wearing a hair shirt. No wonder he's so negative. Maybe John isn't the standard. That we Christians need to listen to. Maybe we should check John's message against Jesus. Jesus was much nicer. He was more gregarious. He was a real people lover. Jesus knew how to enjoy food and good wine. Maybe John was wrong. I mean, I know he's in the Bible and all. But let's check him against what Jesus said. Just to be sure that John got it right. So we turn over to the next chapter in the Gospel of Matthew. That's where Jesus preaches his first sermon. And here's what we read. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Holy smokes. Jesus starts his sermon exactly the same way that John started his. Repent. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Okay, well, both of those quotations come from Matthew. So perhaps this whole repent thing is just a peculiarity of that one writer. Surely the basic message of the word of God, surely the gospel wouldn't, I don't know, strike such an off-putting tone. So let's look a little further afield. How about this one? I will judge each of you according to your own ways, declares the sovereign Lord, repent. Turn away from all your offenses, then sin will not be your downfall. Ugh. God judging everyone and repent again. That's just some Old Testament negativity. How about the Apostle Paul? The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Double ugh. Repent again? All people everywhere, not just those bad people over there, but good people like me? Well, that's just the Apostle Paul. We know how sin-obsessed he is. Let's try St. Peter. And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Triple ugh. Repent again, every one of you. Again, I thought St. Peter was the, the nice Apostle. I know. Let's check on Jesus again. Maybe one of the other New Testament scribes got it right. You know, maybe Matthew was ah, wrong. Mark's gospel is the earliest gospel. Let's go there. Let's see what he says. 
Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, so far so good, proclaiming the gospel of God, saying the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. This is great. Repent and believe the good news. Ugh, 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 ugh. How can Jesus put the word repent and good news in the same sentence? What's so good about standing up and saying, I'm sorry. I was wrong. I knew better and I shouldn't have done that. What kind of masochistic nut would look forward to the opportunity to repent? Now I'm going to answer that question in just a little bit. Let me say three things very clearly now, and all joking aside. First, there is no good news without repentance. Second, there is no kingdom of God without repentance. And third, the number one reason people miss out on the kingdom of God is because they can't bring themselves to say, I was wrong, I'm sorry, I repent. This is the second Sunday of Advent. This is a four-week period of preparation for the coming of Christmas. The word Advent itself just means arrival. So Advent is the preparation for the arrival of Jesus. And during this season, our scripture readings are both about the first Advent of Jesus. Okay, That was in Bethlehem so long ago. And The second advent of Jesus, which will be at the end of days, at the consummation of the kingdom of God in the day of the Lord, we're looking forward to that one still. Scripture uses a variety of ways to talk about the coming time when Jesus will reappear in the world. And he's going to reappear not as a disembodied spirit, but as a physical reality with his real resurrected human body. As we read last week, No one knows the day or the hour when Christ will return. Only the Father knows. And frankly, I don't know why there is so much curiosity in the church about when the second coming will happen. The date of the second coming has absolutely no impact on how we should live our lives. To be a follower of Christ means that we live as if the second coming could happen today. We live every day as if this could be the last day of the current age and the first day of the new age. And then, of course, there's the basic reality that no one knows what day they will die, but what we do know from Scripture is that the moment we die, the moment we close our eyes in death, the next moment we're going to open them and we're going to be standing in front of Jesus. Our death will be for us our own personal second coming of Jesus. We'll die, And then Jesus will appear. We'll see him. Now there's a big difference between the first and the second advent. The first advent, the first Christmas, Jesus came in humility. In the second advent, Jesus will come in power. In the first advent, Jesus came as a good shepherd to seek and to save those who were lost. But in the second advent, Jesus comes as a judge holding the power of life and death. That's what the second part of John the Baptizer's sermon is all about. So let's take a look at that now. John uses two images for the coming Messiah. One is the axe and the tree, and the other is the winnowing fork and the chaff. Those of you who've hung around churches 
long enough know these images well. John writes, even now the axe is laid to the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And he writes, his winnowing fork, this is Messiah's winnowing fork, is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. John says that the Messiah will separate those things that do not bear fruit from uh, those things which are valuable. He calls it elsewhere in that same passage, fruit in keeping with repentance. So the fruitless tree and the worthless chaff, they are separated by the axe and by the winnowing fork, and then they're thrown into the fire. Now, why is John pointing this out? Here's the logic of John's sermon. Number one, the kingdom of heaven is coming really soon. Number two, the king, when the kingdom of heaven arrives, those who do not bear fruit, those who are worthless chaff, will be thrown into an unquenchable fire. Number three, bearing fruit is the result of repentance. And number four, therefore, repent all y'all and do it now so that you don't get thrown into the fire. That's the, the logic of his sermon in a nutshell. In last week's sermon, we looked at Jesus' description of the coming day of the Lord, the day that inaugurates the kingdom of heaven. According to Jesus, the day of the Lord is both good news and bad news. The day of the Lord is good news for those who are awake. For them, it's a day of salvation. But the day of the Lord is bad news for those who are asleep because everyone who's asleep on that day will be swept away the way so many people were swept away in the time of Noah's flood. So the imagery changes from Jesus' sermon to John's sermon, but the basic idea is the same. In John's sermon, the day of the Lord, the inauguration of the kingdom of heaven, is a sweet day for those who have repented and who are bearing fruit of repentance. But for those who haven't, for them, it's a day that they're chopped down, or it's a day that they're winnowed like chaff and thrown away. The day of the Lord, the inauguration of the kingdom of heaven, is a day of judgment, and Jesus is the judge. The first time, Jesus comes as a shepherd, and the second time, he comes as a judge, which is why both John and Jesus are so eager to start their preaching with the same word, repent. Repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand, repent because... The day that the judge will sit down at his judgment seat is coming soon. So no more fooling around. It's time to get things straight so that we can meet the judge and be on the right side of God's law. And the only way to do that is to repent. So who needs to repent? Let's talk about that for just a couple of minutes. Because maybe it seems a little strange that everyone is called to repent. I mean, if you rounded up everyone in this neighborhood and hauled them before a judge, not all of them would be guilty. I mean, some would, but not all of them. So why does the Bible say that everyone needs to repent? And remember, we read verses from Peter, Paul, James, uh, John, and Jesus, all telling their listeners that they all need to repent. How can that be? 
At the beginning of his sermon, John says, repent all y'all and do it now. But then a little further down in his sermon, John calls out two special groups of people, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and he seems to really lay into them. He calls them a brood of vipers, which seems to be a bad thing. As Christians, I'm afraid that we've gotten a little too smug in our attitude toward the Pharisees and the Sadducees. I think part of that might be the latent anti-Semitism in the church. We think of Pharisees as religious hypocrites and we think of Sadducees as politically compromised uh, religious officials. But I think that's the wrong way to read what John is saying here. The Pharisees were lay people. They were very earnest. They were dedicated to the study of the Bible and to living sanctified lives. And the Sadducees, they were officials who worked uh, in the temple there in Jerusalem. In a very real way, these two groups are the most religiously serious people to be found. And so when John calls the spiritual elite a brood of vipers, what does that say for the rest of us ordinary people who maybe don't read the Bible every day or who sometimes don't pray before meals or who every once in a while will skip Sabbath worship? If the zealous people are vipers, what about the rest of us? Well, we're probably worse than vipers. I think that's John's point. Like Jesus, John begins with a universal call to repentance. It isn't only notorious sinners and criminals who need to repent. It's also those who tithe and never miss a Sunday in church. They need to repent too. So why this universal call to repentance? Why do I, a nice pastor guy, who loves his wife and takes care of his kids and has never used illegal drugs and never committed a felony, why do I need to repent as much as a sinner in federal prison? What is it at bottom that puts all humanity in the same boat of being guilty before God? It's easy to know why drug dealers and pimps need to repent. But what about solid citizens who pay their taxes and mow their lawns? What's God's beef with them? Why do even the Pharisees and the Sadducees need to repent? That's the question I've been wrestling with all week as I've been working on this sermon. And here's what I came up with. The fundamental sin, and it is a sin that successful people are particularly susceptible to, The fundamental sin is a belief in our own self-sufficiency and independence. I think this is the sin that underlies every other sin. We make an idol of our self-sufficiency and our independence. We deny that we're totally dependent upon God. We and, And by doing that, we deny God the glory that's due Him. Now, a poor man who's not able to provide for his children might cry out to God and ask for help, but a prosperous man... He can be confident that he's got things under control. A drunkard who's finally hit rock bottom might cry out to God and ask for help, but a sober man or even a functional alcoholic might be confident that he's got things under control. A hot-tempered man 
who keeps getting into trouble with his tongue, might cry out to God and ask for help, but an even-tempered man can be confident that he's got things under control. When we have confidence in ourselves, when we are convinced that we have things under control, we are, in fact, not only delusional, but we deny God the honor that he deserves as the one who has given us everything that we have and who holds us in being Every moment that we exist. God created us out of nothing. He could just as easily return us to nothing. The mythology of the self-made man, the great American myth, the great modern secular myth, the myth of the self-made man is a direct affront to the sovereignty of God. And oddly enough, it's this kind of self-sufficiency and willful independence that wriggles its way into our religious life. Jesus' complaint with the Pharisee was that they were very zealous in keeping God's law, but that in their zealousness in keeping God's law, they had created their own self-made righteousness. And they had, in fact, made them not needing God anymore. In fact, they seemed to think that God needed them. The same way that a rich man or a sober man or an even-tempered man might think that he doesn't need God because... He's got it all under control. Of that kind of self-sufficiency and independence, we need to repent. Repentance is the mature, informed, responsible recognition that we are broken and dependent creatures and that we have not met the demands of our unbroken and independent creator. When we repent, we admit that we're not up to snuff, that we're not good enough by ourselves, that we are desperately needy for God, that we're not self-sufficient. Repentance means admitting that without God, we're a wreck. Now here's the wonder of the gospel. Everyone who repents and turns to God, every one of those people is welcomed with open arms. And every one of those who turn to God in their moment of repentance, they all receive free and as an unmerited gift the full forgiveness of their sins and the full righteousness of Christ that's credited to their account. It's an ironic reversal. When we say, I'm a sinner and I need God's help, God helps us and he makes us righteous. But when we say, hey, I've got this under control, don't worry about me, God lays the axe to our root and he throws us in an unquenchable fire. So let me close this morning with a psychological observation and with an altar call. If we can receive God's full righteousness as a free gift, If we can be adopted as children of God and as a sibling of Jesus Christ himself with all the blessings and privileges that that entails, why in the world wouldn't we jump at the chance? What holds us back? What holds us back is the same thing that got us into trouble in the first place. It's called pride, which is just another word for self-sufficiency and independence. Pride keeps us from grabbing hold of the greatest deal ever because that great deal requires that we repent, that we admit our guilt, that we admit our shortcomings, that we admit our need for God. And for some of us, our pride just cannot 
who tolerate that kind of truth? When we're wrong and when we know that we're wrong in the heart of our hearts, even then we sometimes to try to buy off the judge so that we don't have to say I was wrong. I'm sorry, I repent. Civil courts will let you do this these days, you know. Sometimes companies will make huge settlements, pay billions of dollars as part of an agreement in which they do not admit any wrongdoing, which is just hilarious. But we try to do the same thing in our relationships. And we try to do that with God by making up for our sins. Here's how it goes. We mistreat our kids and then we take them out for ice cream. See, kids? I'm not an ogre. I'm a nice guy. Let's not talk about how daddy behaved last night. We mistreat our wives and then we send them flowers. See, darling, I'm not a schmuck. I'm a nice guy. Let's not talk about what I said last night. These are attempts to save ourselves. They're attempts to be self-sufficient and independent because we don't want other people to give us anything. We don't want any people to save us. This is prideful performance instead of humble repentance. And guess what? It just doesn't work. It doesn't work in our human relationships. It certainly doesn't work with God. What's required for a healthy human relationship is owning our guilt and asking for forgiveness when we're wrong. And what do we honestly think that we can offer God if we were to bargain with God? What do we think that we can give God that will make up for our sin and our rebellion? Perfect church attendance? Daily Bible study? A regular tithe plus a tip on top? Those are all good things, but none of them erase our guilt before God. Only Christ's sacrifice on the cross does that for us. And what we need to do is just receive it. Just receive it. It's free. It's offered to you. Receive that rather than receiving Christ's judgment when we see him again. Well, that takes us back to the second person plural, present, imperative, verb that starts both John and Jesus' sermons. We need to repent. Repentance is, in fact, the door to freedom in Christ. And repentance is the key to the kingdom of heaven. So let me close with a brief altar call this morning. Now, we Presbyterians don't have altars in our churches. And so that makes an altar call a little confusing. But we're smart people. We'll figure this out. We're not going to let a little bit of furniture get in our way. Here's my invitation to you this morning. If you're a sinner in need of the grace of God, I would love for you to come forward to me. And we'll pray together briefly as a gesture, as a visible sign of your repentance. And then I'll send you back with a blessing. If you have never received Christ as your Lord and Savior, then I want to invite you to come forward to me and I'll pray with you briefly. And I'll say a blessing over you. It's a gesture. It's a visible sign of your repentance. If you're a Christian, but have let your heart grow cold toward God, 
I want to invite you also to come forward to me this morning. And let me just pray with you very, very briefly. I'll say a word of blessing over you and send you back to your seats. Martin Luther, in the very first of his 95 theses, wrote this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said in Matthew 4.17, Repent, He willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. And so if you're a Christian living in the joy of your salvation, enjoying close communion with Jesus, I want to invite you too to come forward and let me pray with you just for a moment and to send you with a blessing as a gesture, as a visible sign of your lifelong repentance. I want to invite you to come forward this morning. Seth Fluter's going to play some music for us on the piano or whatever he wants to play on. And I'm going to invite the rest of you who are not coming forward to just pray where you are. And I want you to come forward and we'll pray together briefly. And then I'll bless you and send you back to your seat. And I want you to respond to this altar call. An unusual thing. We don't do this so much around here. On this second Sunday of Advent. Because this is our time of preparation for the coming of the Lord. And scripture commands us, repent. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Amen.